Hello and welcome to White Swan, the podcast that gives you the inside story on how leaders tackle crises. I'm Gavin McGaw, and on this podcast, we aim to furnish you with the learnings behind the headlines so that when the proverbial hits the fan, you can keep things turning. Now, it's been a while, but we're delighted to be back, and also that our colleague and producer Steph is also back stronger and healthier after some time off. Steph, if you're listening, you've been missed, and it's great to have you back. On this episode of White Swan, we're going to be joined by Thomas Hurd, who has held senior roles working in the UK government, including liaising with the intelligence agencies, counterterrorism police, the National Crime Agency, and recently heading up the Joint Biosecurity Centre. Trust me, folks, this interview is not one to miss. Tom has been at the heart of dealing with the UK's major national crises for many, many years. And during the interview, we're going to cover off some brilliant rules for leaders to follow in a crisis, as well as discussing the threat from cyber attacks, the lessons from COVID and the big issue of disinformation. But before we hear from Tom, I'm joined by Karen White of National in Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK. Welcome, Karen and Gary. Now, it feels like a very long time since we last chatted. Welcome back. Uh, And what a great interview it is to start the series with again. Uh, We recorded this several months ago, but the advice Thomas Hurd gives us in his interview has only seasoned rather than gone stale in my mind. Karen, Tom talked about what it's like in the Cobra briefing room. That's at the heart of Whitehall in the UK when a crisis happens. He delved into leadership behaviours you need in that room to get the right cohesive approach, the right energy, and ultimately the right result. But what were the lessons you took away that you're going to be telling to your business leaders that you work with on a regular basis? Yeah, Gab, there were a lot of lessons and principles that Tom shared that really resonated. You know, it's like he speaks our language or Maybe it's more we speak his, but putting the facts in the room, setting the context of the issue and collecting information from relevant agencies. And I like that notion of the clarity about what we do and do not know, the importance of setting the structure of a crisis meeting. And I really like the anticipation and ironing out of disagreements ahead of the meeting, just making sure we're showing up in a focused way in the room. Avoiding the blame game, you know, having that good emotional intelligence in the room and knowing your clarity of objectives. So being very clear about your incident planning priorities. And the one that resonated with me most, I think, and this is how I like to show up in a room, is bringing a bit of humor and the right energy. You know, it's not something that you can do up front, but humor, I do agree, it can be a way to bond with your colleagues in times of crisis. And I think that's something that's come out in a number of interviews that we've done, hasn't it, Karen? You know, we may look at it and say, oh, that's dangerous. And of course it is if it's done in the wrong way. But when you're trying to keep a team going, that sort of dark humour is sometimes important to do so. Gary, what about you? What are the lessons from your perspective? Yeah, I think that was one of the main takeaways. It was interesting, reassuring that a lot of what Thomas talked about mirrored a lot of what the discussions we've had in this series I think what really jumped out to me is the need for the leader in a crisis to understand their role, that they're not there to micromanage or to blame. They're there to set the conditions for the team to perform effectively, to delegate, and then to ensure that there is a strategic focus driving the response beyond the immediate tactical requirements. And that means establishing clear roles and responsibilities, but also importantly, ensuring there is respect for those roles which struck me as another reason why it's important to plan in advance and to test your crisis management team as far as possible to ensure you can be confident that you have the right people around the table when you need them. 
So loads of good lessons there. Well, let's hear from Thomas Hurd himself in this interview now. Each episode of White Swan features an in-depth conversation with leaders so you get to learn about their crisis experience and the lessons you need to hear. I've been super excited about talking to today's guest. Thomas Hurd has spent nearly 30 years working in national security, both in the UK and abroad. Most recently, he was a Director General of the British government's Office for Security and Counterterrorism. This role meant that Tom was the most senior official in the UK government responsible for homeland security, leading cross-government work countering state threats, cybercrime and security, disinformation, money laundering, online harms, child sexual exploitation and terrorism. And if that wasn't enough, he also oversaw the domestic operations of the intelligence agencies, CT police and the National Crime Agency and played a leading role internationally on domestic security issues. Back in May 2020, following the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic, Tom was tasked with setting up the UK's Joint Biosecurity Centre, a data-led organisation that brought data science and public health expertise together in one place to spot earlier and more accurately outbreaks of COVID-19 in the UK and then advise the UK government and local authorities how best to respond. So I think it's fair to say that Tom's experiences in high-pressure environments and at the forefront of crisis management within government make him an ideal person for us to speak to today on this podcast. Tom, welcome to White Swan. Gavin, it's great to be with you today. Tom, you have such an amazing backstory here, loads of experience being in the room where it really matters. But how did you get there? I've worked for 30 years in national security. I'm a linguist by trade and I studied Arabic at university. And when you learn a language like that, if you don't find the national security community, they tend to find you. So I've spent 30 years at home and abroad. When I've been abroad, it's mainly been in the Middle East. It's tended to be countries where you don't go on holiday. But as you said, the last five years, I was kind of responsible for homeland security in the UK. So dealing with lots of kind of crises and a broad range of issues that you set out. Uh, Before that, I was the chief of the assessment staff in the cabinet office. Now, that person is the head of the intelligence analysis community in the UK, and they're the first briefer at any COBRA, which is the UK's crisis management system. So when you go into COBRA, the first three minutes are the briefer setting out what's happened, where, why, and what next. And I did that role for a period as well. And then just before I left government, I worked on COVID, as you said, setting up the Joint Biosecurity Centre. But if I was to kind of sum up what I've been doing during my career, Gavin, I've always been looking for the right people with the right information at the right time. Well, that's a good summary, I think, for business leaders who are listening to this, Tom, of what they should be doing as well, particularly when a crisis comes around. You know, just taking you back to your early days going into COBRA, providing them with the upfront briefings to try and set the context in the right way, show the data that matters... What sort of crisis are we talking about? Is there any you can talk us through and how you felt walking into that room for the first time? Any national security crisis, so any hostage-taking situation overseas, chemical weapon attacks in Syria, 
if the Prime Minister decided to call a COBRA in order to deal with the situation, so the threshold for that would be that this is of high national and national security importance, then the group meets. And it's in a kind of basement in the Cabinet Office, lots of TV screens on the walls, leather chairs, lots of lighting, microphones, things like that. It's what you would expect of a crisis situation room. But my role then was to put truth in the room right at the beginning of the discussion. And that meant collecting all the information from across all the agencies and departments in government and open source into a two or three minute presentation right at the start of the meeting. And the aim of that was that you then had the facts in the room. You didn't need to waste any more time discussing people feeding in their anecdotes or their perspectives. You have one person who is independent, whose job was to put the facts in the room so then they could get on with the discussion about what to do. And of course, success for me, after I stopped talking after three minutes, was silence. <laughs> Nobody felt they needed to say, oh, well, look, I think he just forgot to mention this or he forgot to mention that. That was the key to success. And then that set the tone for the meeting and they could get on then with one single version of the facts that we know and that would set the tone for the meeting. So you'd have the facts you know and the things you don't know very clearly set out up front. But I guess there is the reality of human beings in this, that you have egos in the room which sometimes like to show areas of expertise which are sometimes non-existent as well. And we see this in business. I've seen it in politics as well. How did you deal with those when you had to? Or was it actually all pretty smooth because these things were so important? Well, I think two ways. One, you anticipate. You try and iron all that out before you get in the room. So if you know that various departments, agencies, personalities may have a slightly differing perspective, you would get that ironed out as much as possible before you went in. And you're working against the clock. You may have three hours to get the information It was really, really important, as you say, to say what we don't know. So, you know, keep it to what was clearly established, known, where at this stage there was just too much uncertainty. And people certainly accept that right at the beginning of the meeting. I think the other thing that helped was that within the structure of COBRA, which is very well established, there is a really set way in which it's done. And so it takes quite a lot for somebody to come in after the briefer, given the briefer has been given the authority and appointed to do that job to say, well, actually, I see it another way. It was quite rare. Sometimes there would be some late breaking news, which people would bring, and they would then put it in at that stage. The whole point was to not waste time having a difference of opinion right at the beginning of a meeting that's trying to bring you all together. Uh, That's good to hear. And I think we'll give everyone great hope, actually, for (laughs) the system we live within, that people operate in the right way when it matters. I mean, you have been in a very privileged position because you've seen leaders react to crises in good and bad ways. And a lot of the leaders who will be listening to this in the business community and beyond, they will often be worried about the way they behave in a crisis From your experience of being in COBRA and other situations, are there behaviours which you would advise people not to follow and behaviours you would say are absolutely required in a crisis for leaders? I think the one thing you have to avoid at all costs is the blame game. So if the management of the crisis starts with a sort of witch hunt around the table about who made a mistake, you'll never get away from that. And of course, in a crisis, 
what you're trying to do is find that moment where you can seize the initiative and get ahead of events. And that takes time sometimes, but that's what you want to do. And the blame game will completely break any cohesion or trust in the room. You know, everybody comes into that room feeling very vulnerable. Something terrible has happened on their watch. These are the people that are responsible for setting it right. So the blame game is the one thing you need to avoid. Good leaders come in and they're calm and they're confident. And you get that from the tone in their voice and actually, more importantly, their body language. So there's something you need to get right there, which is you don't want the body language to be too relaxed, but you don't want it to be all crunched and taut and angry. And good leaders know how to do that. And then it helps in a crisis if... The leader right at the beginning ensures everybody knows their roles and responsibilities and that they are taking themselves out in some cases to a strategic position. They are trusting everybody in the room to do what they are responsible for doing. So I think it's a bit of visible calm and confidence, feeling comfortable immediately that leader delegating, not diving in and micromanaging. And then a little bit of humour helps. It's tricky. And if you're in a terrorist situation, there are people dead. You know, the Manchester bombings, a lot of people dead. And the first meeting, no humour. This is a very sober moment. But as time goes on, a bit of humour does help just bring that cohesion and the right energy into the room, particularly as people start to get tired. That's a really interesting point. And, you know, I think anyone who's been in a major crisis situation knows it's not in any way malicious humor it's just humor to bind people together and to find a way through and actually to make the crisis team more resilient but tiredness really does bite for teams how did you cope with that at a national level was there a rotor system were there people booking the hotels dealing with the food because these are all the things often business leaders forget about putting in place in their plans because they assume a crisis will be in and out briefly and of course with covid we saw a ongoing crisis which we'll come to later which went on for many many months but is that all taken care of behind the scenes within cobra is there people with set rules to do that yeah i mean it's a whole floor there's myriads of rooms all connected and with all the right kits and things like that yeah look i think the local domino's pizza does a very good <laughs> trade but a couple of things on that my personal speech is experience the basics are things the things you don't expect can really get in the way. If a video link doesn't work to our man in Moscow or Kabul or something like that, it's extraordinary how that can take a lot of information out of the room, but it can also take a lot of energy out of the room. The video link doesn't work. Christ, that's not a good start. You know, if you were in a cyber security attack, a ransomware attack, your telephone system might not work at all. You haven't imagined that, but that might be where you are. No computer or telephone system works because the telephone system's linked to the computers. So you're absolutely right. Don't assume that the basics are in place and practice. And a lot of that is about practicing. The other one, it sounds glib, but for me, the thing was, in a crisis, avoid sugar. So you have to be on the top of your game. You've got to be really alert. So just avoid stimulants. Don't come back at the end of the day and have a large glass of wine. You might want to, but it will catch up with you. Where I was and being responsible for counterterrorism, you know, I had a unit 
right next door to my desk whose job was to manage the crisis. And they spent their time in between practicing learning lessons, but they were a well-oiled machine. And when there was a crisis, their job was to be on it within two minutes and have a brief ready to go up to kind of ministers, parcel out actions, things like that. They were kind of like the engine room. And I remember a, a senior minister coming up and saying, I want to see your crisis management team. And he walked in and he was expecting to see a room full of screens and telephones and things like that. But no, it was just a normal office space. And he said, I can't believe it. You manage this from here. I said, yeah, because it's in the culture. They all know what to do if there's a crisis and they just get on with it. And they come to me and they say, this has happened. This is now what you need to do. And we're doing BBB. And I said to him, I know when it gets serious, when they stop eating cake and they start eating fruit. That's when I knew they were having to dig in. It's a good lesson for life, that as well, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you've talked very elegantly there about the clear understanding of roles and responsibilities and where the delegated duties are in a crisis, which is a definite tick for any crisis preparation for businesses. You talked about the right behaviors from leaders, the calm assuredness, the confidence they can give to everyone in the room and everyone in their organizations. You talked about the need to get the system set up in the right way. All of these are really, really important lessons for businesses when they're considering their crisis operational response. And also thinking of the worst case, you know, it's a ransomware attack. What's your plan B in those circumstances? The one thing, though, that always strikes me as a missing link, which shouldn't be, is that a lot of organizations don't stop at the start of a crisis and ask themselves, what's our objective here? Whether it's to save lives, whether it's protect reputation, whether it's to get the economy up and running or protect that. And does that happen in COBRA meetings? Do people, are they very clear on what the objective is? Yes, I think so. I mean, with the counterterrorism, it's predominantly where cobras will happen. The job is to contain the attack and arrest the perpetrators. But what I do think leaders need to do is to look for the opportunity in the crisis. Because the crisis will end. But how are you going to come out stronger and better from the crisis? Now, part of that is being very, very forensic on noting down everything that happened so you can go through it afterwards and you can learn lessons and you do the wash-ups and do the learning of lessons and you exercise everything that you've learned. That's really, really important. But for the leader, it's also part about the messaging is we're going to come out stronger and better from this. And he or she needs to look for the opportunities to be able to do that as you're going along. And at some point, stand up and set the course where it's like, I know we're in crisis, but when we come out, this is what we're going to look for. And certainly, if you've got a major national crisis, it's in the headlines every day. The public need a lot of assurance that you're on it. And that means that ministers need lots of assurance that their officials and their agencies and everybody else is on it. And I always found there was a moment, about 48 hours, 72 hours in, where you would need to go and see the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister and say, the plan after the crisis is this. And you could tell that they needed that. They needed that assurance that you had that strategic direction that went beyond the crisis and that you had thought that through and they knew that there was going to be a plan. I love that because for us in our worlds, a lot of the time that's internal communications and, and guiding people through. You talked earlier about data 
and the importance of data. And I, you know, I know speaking to people about you that this is something you're very well respected for across government. You talked about bringing the right data together can make better outcomes and ultimately save lives, particularly in anti-terrorism and counter-terrorism work. It makes sense to me, but can you tell us a little bit more about why you think data is so important and how you think businesses could better use data in crisis situations? Data and the analytical tools available now allow us to start making predictions. And in counter-terrorism, that's where you want to be because it's the only security system that we have that is designed to take action before the event. You want to catch the terrorists before they carry out the attack. And COVID was the same. We wanted to find COVID before it spread. We wanted to get ahead of the curve. And now the tools exist to be able to do that. And there has been, through COVID, a massive acceleration in the digital transformation of companies, organisations, our own lives as we go online. And digital transformation is a slightly dull word. It's not as fun as AI and quantum. Um, But actually, it's the most real and the most transformative technological shift that is happening. And there are well-rehearsed challenges around using data to gain actual insights, the quality of data you have, the security and privacy that you put around that data, the new world of sort of DevOps and machine learning, all, all these things are quite familiar. But in my experience, the main focus for leaders needs to be around creating the right culture and skills in their organization to master data. And not to think that it's something that's going to be done by a small group of data scientists in a floor underneath the cafeteria. But to do that, leaders do have to spend time feeling comfortable about the basic tools and ethics of using data. They don't have to be experts, but they have to get to a point where they feel comfortable about it. But it is very striking, even within companies or organisations that talk an enormous amount about how they're using AI and things like that. It's striking how actually the culture within those organizations may not have been ready for that. It's really interesting the way you describe that. And it strikes me that we're all data and technology businesses these days, if we're being honest, because it's so important to the way we all function. And leaders maybe need to be challenging themselves and being a bit more ambitious in terms of the data they can get from inside and beyond in crisis situations and pre-plan that as well. It also strikes me though, because you are very good on cyber security and ransomware attacks and things like that. And I I recently read a book by Nicole Perloth from the New York Times. They they say this is how the world is going to end, I think it's called. And in it, she talks about there not being a single area of our lives which isn't touched by the web anymore and how we can now control our home lives through economy and grid through a remote web control system. Uh, And that we never pause to think along the way that we are creating the world's largest attack surface. Um, And I know every single one of our uh, clients out there in the business community will have at the top of the risk register. So talk us through your view on that. Is it as bad as we're all hearing? Is it such a big risk? And is there any way to counter it or we just have to manage it? I'll make three points on this, Gavin. The first is that I'd like to dispel the myth that ransomware gangs are a bunch of hoodies in a placement of a sort of building, let's say, in Moscow. 
these are sophisticated organizations. They have kind of financial backers. They have sort of people who analyze companies. They have mules that move money and stuff around. They have technicians that produce the malware, but also have to create a very sophisticated infrastructure on the internet to be able to carry out a malware attack. And then they have negotiators. They have people, they have a hotline, they have a customer support unit that deals with people and negotiates with people that they've targeted. So this isn't a bunch of hoodies in a basement. And they tend to be people who've been in this game for a long time. Before they got onto ransomware, they were doing other forms of fraud. But it really lifted off ransomware when these gangs figured out that they could extract money through ransomware using the Bitcoin system. And that's now becoming more difficult for them because the FBI can now follow the money. But to begin with, that gave them the ability to ramp up their operations because they found an easy exit for the money. The second is that there's been a big shift. We are going online. And we've always been online as consumers for the last 10 years or so. So ransomware gangs have targeted what you might call the consumer internet. But now the bit that's going online is our logistics and our infrastructure. And that means that ransomware gangs have new targets to aim at, which could be hospitals or a water company or a school or a factory with heavy machinery. So that's the new attack surface. And those companies are going to be very, very profitable in the world of automation. They're going to be making the kind of money that consumer internet companies made in the last 10 years. And of course, the ransomware gangs will go after the money. And my third point is that that then is the problem. Because when they were defrauding us on the consumer internet via our credit cards and things like that, that was a cost to the company that provided, or the bank, and we felt foolish. Now they're targeting physical infrastructure, which is part of our daily lives. And what happens if they attack a hospital and the ICU unit doesn't work and people die? Then you're into a different level of risk and crisis through that kind of thing. Now, up until now, these gangs have been quite calibrated. They tend to target companies that they know can pay, perhaps have insurance, and they're not looking to bring the full heat of the law, let alone a nation state, onto their backs. But in the adrenaline rush of greed, they may go too far. And that's my big worry. I think that then changes the dynamic about how we look at ransomware. So that's really interesting. So the fear is really an overreach, which leads to a serious infrastructure attack here in the UK or, or elsewhere. What also interests me, though, is where there is a absolutely clear connection between states and ransomware or cyber attacks and whether they are using them on purpose as part of cyber warfare, in effect. And, you know, we're speaking now several weeks into the conflict in Ukraine. I know a lot of people in business feared a significant increase in cyber security threats once that war began. I had one banker tell me he had taken several thousand pounds out of his bank account and put it in a safe at home because he was worried the financial system might stop functioning with attacks, which was quite concerning from what I heard. Obviously, that has not happened. We're in a lot better position. But I also wonder whether we're surprised by that and whether experts like yourself are a bit surprised that the attacks haven't come or have they come and we're just better prepared. 
I think that under the surface, there's still been a lot of cyber warfare activity, but this has moved up a level to kind of state on state. And the Ukrainians are pretty good at cyber, and they've obviously had some help. So I think there's been stuff that's going on under the surface between states on cyber that none of us has seen that is kind of happening. It is a surprise on one level that the ransomware gangs have gone a bit quiet. And part of that is I think there's a bit of wrangling going on within the ransomware gangs. I mean, some of the more prominent gangs are half Russian, half Ukrainian. So I expect they have ah. a little bit of dirty linen they've got to wash within their own organisations. But I think that they will come back. It will be just a matter of time. And the links are there between some of those ransomware gangs and the state. I mean, certainly the North Koreans use ransomware to rebuild state finances. And certainly the Russian intelligence services have some links into these ransomware gangs. It's not easy to work out exactly what those links are, but they certainly exist. And at some stage, maybe they'll come into play. Really interesting. And look, that is going to stay on the top of the risk register for many years to come, I'm sure, for businesses out there. One big issue we didn't really see coming, well, we did see coming, but we didn't prepare properly for, was the pandemic. I don't think businesses were set up to deal with it. I think Christian Bock, the Dutch educationalist, said we moved from 2020 to 2030 overnight in March 2020 in terms of digital infrastructure that we suddenly put in place, which is a good step forward. But as a country, we had lots of planning that probably should have been done for pandemics, etc. You were brought in to help try and fix the problem. And you set up the Joint Biosecurity Centre in May of 2020. Do you want to talk us through what that was like going into a... And at that time, things were really scary. We didn't know where this was going to go. And now, a couple of years later, life seems a lot better. But back then, there were serious concerns. People thought they were all going to be out of jobs forever. We thought we were going to be living like this forever. So just talk us through your mindset going in and the, the issues you saw and how you dealt with them. Yeah. So I got a phone call slightly out of the blue, and I was told to build a science and data brain using all the information that we had across the UK from multiple sources around COVID infections. The aim was then to build this data brain and then run analytics across it so we could anticipate better when and how COVID would spread. We then also had to take that best insight to the best epidemiologists that we could find in the UK and come up with a plan of what to do. So, yeah, really easy. And then they said, well, you've got six weeks. You can have whatever finance and resource you need, but you've got six weeks. So no pressure. I took inspiration from a guy called Admiral Ramsey. And Admiral Ramsey was tasked with evacuating the troops from Dunkirk. And the story goes that he sort of travelled down by train to Dover, where he had been given offices that were kind of built into the cliffs of Dover. And he found almost nothing there. And he wrote home to his wife regularly talking her through how he'd just been trying to get the tables and the chairs and everything else sorted out just to get things up and running. But he said that he and his team every day could look across the channel from their offices and see the troops on Dunkirk beaches. And so they all knew exactly what the mission was. And so I took a lot of inspiration from that story 
and bringing that emotional energy into managing a crisis. So most leaders, as you know, bring an enormous amount of intellectual energy into their leadership and therefore into managing a crisis. But emotional energy connects and coheres people much more strongly around the mission, particularly when people are tired, frightened, and working virtually in that way. So the second thing that was really important about Admiral Ramsey's story was he had to improvise. So there are different leadership styles, and people don't tend to improvise. We're all the best management practices around good planning and design, consensus building, and then build. But we didn't have the time. We just had to improvise to get this new capability up and running in six weeks. Now, we did achieve it. And I remember a fantastic moment when I rang up an emeritus professor of a university who had one of the best data scientists in the world in his team. And I said, look, I need this guy for this. It's Friday. Can he start Monday? And the guy said to me, he's coming now. And you go, oh, my God, thank God. Thank you. And it gave you that little adrenaline rush that everybody was with you. So... It was a really important thing. And I took a lot of solace from the fact that Sir Jeremy Farrer, who's head of Wellcome Trust, one of the eminent thinkers on medicine in the UK and globally, said that there were two things that the UK did really well in COVID. One was a vaccine programme by Kate Bingham, and the second was a joint biosecurity centre. Amazing. And rightly so. So congratulations to you. But when you were setting it up, Tom, You speak so elegantly about it, and you make it sound relatively simple, given how difficult it was. But there's a lot of noise happening outside. Newspapers, lots of hyperbole, lots of political pressure, lots of drama happening, and pressures being put on you, I would expect, from all those stakeholders around and above. How do you ignore that and focus in on what matters? Well, one thing it was really important to do was kind of manage expectations of the leadership of the country. There were lots of other countries that had made five years of investment already in how to deal with viruses. And so they would come and they would kind of say, well, why can't we have that? Look at that country in Asia. They've got a fantastic system. Why can't we have that? It's like, we have six weeks. (laughs) We can only go from A to B. We can't go from A to Z. So there was a lot of bringing your personal authority and track records and credibility to bear and saying, you're going to have to believe me, I have built these things, you have told me to build this. When I tell you that this is where we're going to be, you have to trust me. And that's difficult. It was really difficult, but you had to do that. I think the other thing is, and I think this is really important for any leader in a crisis, is that you do need to find somebody that you can talk to about your own vulnerability. Can I really pull this off? Why am I getting stressed out about this? How can I manage that? You know, those private moments when you just want somebody to kind of listen who's outside the bubble, who just keeps you kind of grounded and kind of rooted. So I found that that was a really important thing to have in place as well. That's really interesting, Tom. That's a trend we're finding with people we interview in this podcast, that having constructively critical and trusted friends who are from outside their industry or specialism who can just be there for a conversation whether it's on a short run or a walk in the morning or just on the end of a phone if you're able to do that in a secure manner it really helps and I think it's because we are resilient as individuals when we're with other people and we're in a community and I think that matters so that's really interesting to hear can I ask the interesting thing about COVID was you saw 
so much nonsense being spoken publicly. There was a lot of disinformation around that. Now, you've worked in Homeland Security combating disinformation. I'm assuming that's coming from other states, et cetera, and trying to influence our political setup, our business communities, all of that. But in COVID, we probably saw similar and states trying to influence that. And how do you deal with disinformation in those situations? And Because business leaders also see disinformation, not always from other states, but from other communities who aren't willing to have a fair debate. How did you deal with it on a national level? The first thing you need is you need data, you need input, you need to know what's out there and what's being said. And the same thing applied to what I mentioned before. You need a group of people that give you a single set of the facts. It won't be perfect, but you're going to go, yep, we're going to go with this group. So we did. We had, uh, actually, I think we got it from outside. We had a couple of contracts out with people who monitor social media, and they were giving us the analysis. And then the first step you do was you would go to the social media companies and say to them, you need to take this down. It breaks your terms and conditions. And we had a lot of good working relationships with the social media companies back to the time we worked with them on counterterrorism material and taking it down. So we knew how to go to them and what we needed to say in order for them to kind of take it down. We had the kind of working relationships. So you could do that as well. And that was definitely the first step. But it is just too easy to put incredible information out there. And the research is showing how susceptible we are all to this. And the only solution that I've seen which looks credible, I don't think there is a technical solution. I don't think this information is magically going to disappear from the internet. The internet is designed to allow this information to flow and concentrate, sometimes aided by some social media companies. But it feels like it comes down to actually an education thing around critical thinking and making sure that we're educating young people at as early age as possible to just step back a little bit from what they see on the internet and just take a breath before they retweet it, actually. I think that would be you know, what, you're, what you're trying to do. But the technology is going to make this more and more difficult because the technology is increasingly allowing people to create ever more authentic messaging and videos, which are fake. So it will be a very big problem. Yeah, I mean, I'm always slightly embarrassed giving my thesis on these things to experts like yourself, Tom, but my views are absolutely right. You've got to monitor, understand and monitor the what's being said. You've got to correct it and educate those people, particularly younger ages, to aggregate and dissect information in the right way. I think the, the big hole, though, is disinformation spreads vigorously in an environment where trust is missing and a vacuum is left because people stopped listening. And I think restoring trust even as simply as directly answering questions because people switch off when they hear a bridge or pivot technique in questions that it's been proven they switch off and if you can get direct answers people listen so there are ways i think from the establishment whether it's business whether it's politics whatever to help repair it's not the fault of them but they are playing into it in my view and i think there are ways to fix that and it's interesting whether you would agree with that thesis that you know a lack of trust is a key component of allowing disinformation to to spread i i think that's very very insightful the vacuum will be filled with conspiracy if you let it and you're right i think everybody's agreed that messaging around COVID was very inconsistent. You have to put yourselves in the communication team's shoes and recognise how difficult it was 
but it was very inconsistent. And I think that did over time erode trust and therefore compliance. Tom, I can't let you leave without asking you this, because you've talked about looking after yourself and looking after teams in a crisis, you know, not eating sugary products, etc., because it's not sustainable. You've talked about the need to talk things through with other people and other voices from outside the immediate bubble that you're working within. Are there any other things that you do in a crisis? You've been seeing so many of these. You're one of those people in the world who there's very few people who've been through as many crises at the heart of big issues as you have. What other things work for you that you think could be good advice for business leaders out there? So I'd mention two things. The first is, you know, putting up my hands. There's a bit of me that rather enjoys a crisis. And we shouldn't, you know, (laughs) because that's the only thing you have to worry about. And sometimes when you're living a complicated life or you've got a very complicated work, suddenly just being able to focus on one thing and getting it right can be very liberating. And everybody else around you also realizes that everybody's got to focus on one thing and getting it right. And so suddenly you see an enormous amount of cohesion. It's wonderful how office politics just completely disappears, let's say. In in a big organization, that's an issue. So I've got to put my hand up and say some of the crises I've had have been the best of times in terms of fulfillment and things like that. I don't think people should be shy about that. It doesn't mean that I'm a war junkie or anything like that. It's just that I know I'm at my best in a crisis. So that's one. The second is I always look for the pivot moment. So when you go from defense to offense, and that's the leader to call, and that sometimes gets lost. Everybody just thinks you just got to get through the crisis and slump on your settee at the end, exhausted. No, there's a moment. Look for the pivot when you move the goalposts and you take that initiative. And in my thing is, I remember after the Manchester Arena attack advising Theresa May, I said, we've got to break the momentum. We've had a number of attacks now. There are going to be people out there who kind of talk the talk who now think they can walk the walk and they can hire a van and buy some knives and attack people in the street. So we have to break the momentum. She said, you've got to go and do that. And that's when we shifted the goalposts. That's when we go, right, okay, we're not going to soak this up any longer. We are going to pivot and we're going to get out there and we're going to, This is counter-terrorism, so this involves a significant show of force. And that broke the momentum. And so I would look, as the leader, you're the person who has to make the call. Look for that pivot and take the opportunity. So that's what I'd add on that, Gavin. That's great advice to end on here, Tom. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time today. It's been an extraordinary privilege to chat through your career your experience and your advice for business leaders. And I really appreciate you doing so. Gavin, it's been a real pleasure joining you today. Thank you, Tom. Well, I loved hearing that again. His thinking on data is absolutely superb. And you can see why he's one of the best in the world at what he does. And the lessons he provided us in regard to how he set up the Joint Biosecurity Centre and the need to improvise to get things done are definitely lessons we can all learn from. I'm again joined by Karen White of National in Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK. Gary, now I was very struck by our chat about misinformation and disinformation at the end of that interview. We talk a lot about this, but does the private sector take it as seriously as it should? Well, I think businesses are very aware of it. And there have been a few examples recently since that interview. I'm thinking mostly around Twitter's blue tick that showed us just how easy it is for misinformation to impact on business financial performance. But the challenge is, as Thomas said, it's very difficult to know what to do. 
Now, I think as a starting point, if you're a business leader, you should consider two things. First, know what's out there. Quite a few businesses, in my opinion, are still quite unsophisticated in their monitoring. And the conversation that's out there about you can have such an impact that it is really worth ensuring you have an accurate analysis of what it is, who it is, where it's likely to go, and what that's likely to mean. And secondly, be part of that conversation. You talked about a vacuum, Gav, in that interview, and I think that's completely correct. This is a time for business leaders to communicate more, not less. We saw this during the COVID pandemic, and my view is it's going to be exactly the same as we go into the cost of living crisis. Gary mentioned it's going to be the same in the cost of living crisis, Karen, but I guess it's the same anywhere in the world, really. Misinformation, disinformation is a problem, whether you're in Europe or North America. Yeah, I think underpinning a lot of our incident crisis response is understanding what is being said. And so we work with our social intelligence team to really assess the data, understand the key conversation themes, what are the key narratives that are emerging, and really looking for that misinformation. And so we really do encourage companies to understand the conversations and take that opportunity to reframe or correct or address misinformation in a times of crisis. If you're not filling that void of information, somebody will do it for you. And so very critically important to your crisis response that you are stepping up, that you are establishing yourself as the source of information about the incident and that you're taking the opportunity to correct and address misinformation. Yeah, absolutely right, Karen. Look, I hope our listeners enjoyed our chat there as much as I did about Tom. I got so much from that interview. Tom's a man who's been in the room when the worst happens. And that experience is vital when the worst happens to you. His focus on ensuring everyone knows what to do in a crisis may sound simplistic, but it is the foundation of how good organisations prepare for and act throughout a crisis. We should all remember what he said early on in the interview about his role in the COBRA briefing room when a national crisis happened in the UK. He talked about owning the facts, as Karen said earlier, and communicating them clearly and concisely up front. Every leader must make sure their response is driven by the facts, not by fiction. We all make assumptions. We all have instincts, but we must not allow them to solely drive our crisis response without whatever facts are available being recognised and understood. To do otherwise would be a dereliction of duty for leaders. Right then, thank you for listening to this episode of White Swan. We'll all be back with another one very soon. Until then, stay warm and stay safe. White Swan is brought to you by Hanover Communications and its global crisis network. To find out more, please visit hanovercoms.com. That's Hanover, H-A-N-O-V-E-R, coms, C-O-M-M-S dot com.